Welcome back to the Tim Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is Tom Hogan. Tom is a lawyer who served in a variety of different roles, including as a federal prosecutor, the elected district attorney of Chester County in Pennsylvania, and he's a partner or he served as a partner doing criminal defense work at major law firms. Uh, he's a graduate of criminology uh, graduate program at the University of Pennsylvania, and he's written now 10 pieces for City Journal about crime law enforcement and the progressive prosecutor movement. This will be his first time on 10 Blocks. So, Tom, thanks very much for joining us, and thanks for these excellent pieces you've been writing for City Journal. Uh, pleasure to be on, Brian, and pleasure to work with the staff at City Journal. They're great. Uh, you know, I'd like to start with one of your most recent pieces. This is the one you co-authored with John McDonald, who's a professor of criminology at uh, the Universal, University of Pennsylvania. This piece talks about the three laws of crime concentration. Uh, roughly, these hold that crime is concentrated among a small group of you know, persistent offenders. It's in a select few neighborhoods or, or even blocks. And at certain periods of time, you know, whether in the night or, or uh, wee hours of the morning, uh, it's become fashionable on the center left to cite supposed experts as a means to foreclose debate about contentious topics. But we tend not to hear from the New York Times about the expert consensus on crime. So what are these three laws of crime concentration? If you could speak a bit about, about each one and how solid is the, the empirical evidence that backs them up? Sure. And it was great to write this with John McDonald, who's really a leading scholar, respected by everybody on the right and the left in academia um, and the general public. So it was great to do this with him. But simply put, crime is incredibly concentrated across time, people and places. And one of those is very intuitive. Everybody gets it the minute you bring it up. The other two are a little less intuitive and require a little unpacking. So let's take them one at a time, um, and I'll go through each one. And then, Brian, after each one, you know, tell me what sort of follow-up questions you have. But the first one and the most intuitive one, let's start with the easy one, is crime is very concentrated by time. And what we see here is what everybody would expect, which is, Brian, if you got up this morning, went for your morning constitutional at 5 in the morning on a Wednesday morning, um, on a brisk fall day, um, what are the chances of you being shot? Not very high. Because when would we expect there to be violent crime? Well, first, from a time perspective, we're expecting it between 10 at night and one or two in the morning. That is when people have had enough to drink, have used drugs, are all out on the streets. So that's when it's going to happen. It's not going to happen to you at five or six in the morning when you're out for your morning constitutional. The second part of time that everyone grasps right away is, what day of the week is this going to happen? Well, it's going to be weekend evenings, weekend nights. It's going to be that Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Um, and that's, again, people get off of work, people go out, you have offenders and victims interacting, and that's when you're going to see crime. And then what time of the year are we going to see it? No big surprise again, it's the summer. It's when it's hot out. And probably the best way of wrapping all this up that I ever heard was from an old cop. And he said, criminals are a lot like cats. They don't like to get up in the early in the morning. 
They don't like it when it's cold and they don't like it when it's raining. And that really wraps it up. So weekends, the nights between 10 at night and one or two in the morning and the hot months is the concentration across time. And that holds across cities in the United States and cities across the world. The only real variations you get there is you get some cultural variations. For instance, in Spain, where they might be eating later at nine or 10 o'clock at night, then you would move that back to 11 to three in the morning. How much of a factor, Tom, in this do you think, and this is a speculative question, I guess, is, you know, you mentioned people drinking, uh, partying, doing drugs, uh, you know, that, that tends to go on later at night. Is, is that one of the big factors driving this? The fact that people are either at the end of their work week or the end of everyone else's work week is when people have money and time on their hands. And, uh, you know, idle hands makes for the devil workshop. So, yes, you mix in drugs and alcohol um, with nighttime um, and you are going to absolutely see more crime. But, yeah, night certainly has something to do with it. Uh, Even if you are under stadium lighting in North Philly, or in Manhattan, there's still going to be more crime at night. So that's one. That's one. Um, And that's the one that everyone gets right away. Everyone's like, yeah, we get it. There's going to be a lot more crime on the weekends and when it's hot and late at night. The second one, though, is that it's incredible. Crime is incredibly concentrated in people. And that is 5% of offenders in any city are responsible for 50% of the crime. And to think of that another way, Um, Suppose you could get rid of 5% of the offenders in the city and your homicide rate went down by 50%. And everyone would say, wow, that's a huge jump. And it really is. And the important thing there is it's not 5% of the people in the city. It's 5% of the offenders. So take a city like Philadelphia, um, 1.5 million people. Say there are 100,000 offenders. Well, 5,000 of those offenders in the city of Philadelphia are responsible for 50% of the violent crime in the city. That is a very small number of people engaged in a very large amount of violence. Now, there's some good news tucked in there. And that good news is, hey, 95% of the people in Philadelphia are good law-abiding folks who just want to live their lives. They want to work. They want to raise their families. And it's this other 5%, very concentrated among the offenders themselves, who are really causing all of this violence. And again, this has been replicated in cities around the world. As a matter of fact, there's a a study out of Switzerland that got it down to 1% of violent offenders caused over 60% of the crime there. So the good news there, not only for the people in the cities, but for law enforcement, you don't have to concentrate on, uh, on 100,000 offenders. You need to concentrate on these 5,000 offenders who are causing 50% of the crime. And I, I suspect if I went to the city of uh, the people of Philadelphia and told them, hey, if we can get these 5,000 guys off the streets and cut what is becoming an historic murder wave in Philadelphia by half, would you guys be good with that? Pretty sure most of the people in Philadelphia would say, yeah, Absolutely. We need to stop the bloodshed. So that's our second concentration, and that is held everywhere. The third concentration of crime is place. 
And this is another one that catches people by surprise a little bit. And that is that less than 5% of the addresses in a city are responsible for over 50% of the violent crime calls. And people want to say, all right, so you're saying that neighborhoods are violent. And that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is you get it down to very specifically 5% of the addresses in a city. And sitting here as a prosecutor, I can still remember what those addresses were. Seventh and Diamond Street, third and Indiana, fifth and Olive. I could take you to houses there. And those houses are going to be responsible for 50% of the violent crime calls to the police. And what are those houses? Well, they're drug houses. Were there gang houses? Were there a, might be a check cashing spot where people are getting robbed consistently. It might be a liquor store. Um, and again, most places in a city are safe, but these 5% are kicking off a huge amount of crime. And so with that concentration, you've got to think, well, what's going on there? And what's going on there is obviously if it's a drug house, you are an attractive nuisance. You are attracting drug users. You are attracting people who want to rob the place because there are drugs and money in there. If it's a gang house, you see what you saw in Chicago, where you saw the mutual combat call by the uh, by Kim Fox, where two gangs got into it in a house and engaged in a shootout. But because of this concentration, we know that a relatively small number of addresses are responsible for a huge amount of the violent crime in any city. Well, so you, you, you know, Tom, you started talking about this, but all of these laws uh, have obvious implications for crime fighting. Um, so, you know, if you do know that crime is happening, not just in a neighborhood, but in a specific apartment or a specific block, uh, or, you know, between these hours on, on these particular days, or is more probable uh, in, in terms of its occurrence, then you would naturally adjust your policing strategy, right? Uh, so this was behind the precision policing idea. Um, I just, you know, that, that Bill Bratton was, was pursuing in New York. I wonder, though, how often is this happening in practice? How much uh, police, policing is now being driven by these, uh, these laws? Uh, that's a great question because the theory is useless without putting it into practice. Um, and the, the simple answer is it's really two questions um, bound up there. One is, are police aware of these concentrations and are they reacting to it? The first question is 100% police everywhere are aware of these concentrations. Uh, you get to any cop who's been on the beat for three years and you ask them, who are the problems in this neighborhood? He'll give you the six or seven names. You ask him where are the problems, he'll take you to the addresses. And he, you ask him where or when are the problems, he'll tell you weekend, night shifts. Um, so police have known this for a long time. Are they reacting to it appropriately? Some are in a very sophisticated fashion. Uh, Bill Bratton is a good example. They use this precision policing um, to great effect in New York. Um, and it actually was modeled what, uh, what Bill Bratton was doing was actually modeled on federal programs, which was Project Safe Neighborhoods. Um, we, when I was a prosecutor, used it in a city called Coatesville, which is a little bit like Flint, Michigan. It's an old steel town that had a lot of violence and drugs. And we used it for seven straight years 
I was laughing when I read uh, Bill Bratton's article. He said he started it in 2015, and we actually started it in 2012. And it took the homicide rate down from roughly 80 per 100,000 in Coatesville down to zero for multiple years. And we did that by concentrating on the very specific people, the very specific places, and then these times, the, those weekend times, we would flood the zone um, with patrol cars and people on bikes. And then we would go after these specific houses. And once we got drug buys out of them, we'd hit them with search warrants and move those houses out. And the people, you know, you don't have to do anything to entrap them. You just have to know who they are and wait for them to commit a crime. And then once they've committed a crime, make sure that prosecutors are there to work with the police. But that last point's a very important point. The police can do all of this stuff, pay attention to all of this crime concentration. But unless the prosecutors are there at the other end to work with the police, to lock up this 5%, to lock down these 5% of locations, and to work with them on taking care of these time frames, then the police can work as hard as they want. It won't move violent crime at all if you don't have a prosecutor working with you. Well, you've written quite a bit, and that was going to be my next question about this movement of progressive prosecutors. Um, you know, these are district and state's attorneys. They're often elected with the help of outside money, uh, you know, most most notably from George Soros, and that they've been vowing to use their their position to end mass incarceration, uh, you know, repair what they see as, as the, a kind of fundamentally unjust criminal justice system. Uh, so, you know, not only have these prosecutors decided not to prosecute entire classes of low-level crimes, such as shoplifting, and we're seeing some of the consequences of that in a city like San Francisco, but they've also been dropping the ball on serious cases, as your your most recent piece, brand new piece, uh, on Chicago and on how Chicago's Kim Fox has, on on ridiculous grounds, declined to bring charges on some very high profile murder cases. Uh, one of these was the murder of a young young girl, for which the police had built, uh, as as you note, a strong case. Another was a gang shootout that killed one person. And Fox there, as, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, uh, cited, this is something new, I think, uh, mutual combat as the reason not to prosecute. So, you know, to, to pick up on what you were just saying, um, you know, can the police or anyone else do anything when you do have these kind of derelict prosecutors? Uh, or is this power of deprosecution really unstoppable without electoral remedy? You know, Brian, I remember when Marilyn Mosby was running, sitting down with a bunch of national level prosecutors and all of us, our reaction was she, whatever she's promising is just to get elected. And when she's in office, she's going to have to fix herself um, because the realities of violent crime will take over. And if she doesn't fix herself, then the, the city will just devolve into violence. So we all agreed that she would certainly correct what she was doing in her campaign rhetoric. Turns out we were wrong. She <laughs> promised exactly what she intended to do. As you said, she deprosecuted across large swaths of the criminal justice system. And the results have been catastrophic for Baltimore, just as they have been catastrophic for 
Chicago and Philly. Uh, Los Angeles is now getting its day under George Gascon, St. Louis. And the simple answer to your question is the ultimate remedy really is electoral. These are elected officials. And until folks step up and say, we're not going to elect them anymore, then the options for the police are very limited. But they are trying, and people are getting very creative at this point. In Chicago, under general rules, in order to file a, a murder uh, warrant to arrest somebody for murder, you have to have the agreement of the police and the prosecutors. But in Chicago, when they couldn't get the agreement of state's attorney Kim Fox to arrest the suspect who apparently killed the seven-year-old girl, shot her in a car, and critically wounded her little sister. Well, the Chicago police filed an emergency override and arrested the individual anyway, and really forced Kim Fox to say, um, no, I'm going to unarrest this person. And the victim's family is going crazy, justifiably. They are not going to see justice. Now, Kim Fox did unarrest this person, did make sure they were, the charges were pulled. Um, but that's going to have an impact for her in the long run. The police also have used things like in the Jussie Smollett case, when Kim Fox's office pulled the charges after his fake hoax hate crime, they went out and they found a sympathetic judge who was outraged that the charges were dropped, his Jussie Smollett's false reports, and they got the judge to appoint a special prosecutor. And that's another option for the police. Now, normally the police in these circumstances would go to the media and would holler and scream that these prosecutors are not prosecuting violent criminals. And in the past, in history, the media would jump in and say, yeah, we can't have this. We're going to run front page headlines um, about the violence and how the prosecutor is letting this happen. But a lot of the mainstream media is on board with what these prosecutors are doing. And so the TV media is doing a pretty good job reporting on it, but the print media um, particularly the mainstream papers, are not. Um, the Philadelphia Inquirer, for instance, where I am, almost never runs articles saying that this is traceable to what the prosecutor's decision is. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch, I do have to call them out for doing a good job of calling out Kim Gardner and saying that what she is doing is causing violence. But at the end of the day, the police are going to be faced with an option of, if this isn't going to change, then they can either de-police and sit in their police cars and not get out until they're going to clean up the bodies and the shell casings, or they can quit and go be a police officer someplace else, out in the suburbs, or just not be a police officer at all anymore. And unfortunately, as been reported by City Journal, that is an option that more and more police officers are taking. And even multi-generation police families are telling their kids, do not become a police officer. Yeah, it's, it's very troubling. And uh, the media role uh, makes me very glad here in New York that we still have uh, the, the New York Post tabloid, which can generate a lot of outrage publicly over high profile uh, criminal incidents like this. And it's, it's uh, you know, it's at least kept... Uh, kept the heat on uh, de Blasio uh, since he became mayor in this area. Um, well, you know, I, 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 my hope is that um, enough of these incidents are, are, you know, 
going to provoke a public backlash. And, you know, in a place like Philadelphia, we just did see Larry uh, Krasner, the Philadelphia DA, who is the very model of this kind of progressive prosecutor, get reelected, much to our surprise, by a pretty significant margin. Although, you know, I gather that the the election was extremely low turnout. Um, you know, I guess uh, just if you're going to make a prediction here, what do you think? Are you you hopeful about you you're you're uh, a Pennsylvania guy? Are you hopeful about a turnaround eventually if crime does start going up? Uh, in the way we're, we're seeing? There absolutely will be a backlash, Brian, and it is coming. Um, it's funny, I was talking to a Krasner supporter immediately after the election, and she was telling me, uh, you know, we have a mandate. We had a huge crushing victory in the primary, um, and that means we have the support of the people for all of these reforms. And I said, well, no, let's look at the math for a second. You've got 65% of the primary vote, 80% of the vote in Philadelphia is Democratic. So you got 80, 65% of that 80%, and there was 20% turnout. Now that I've become a criminologist and actually have to do the statistics and actually do the math, that's only 10.4% of the active voters in Philadelphia who voted and supported Krasner. That's not very much. That reflects more apathy than a mandate. Um, but that being said, uh, even with that small sliver of people who are approving uh, somebody like Krasner, when that violence starts to hit home, people will change the way they vote. And the place where that violence is hitting home first is actually in the poor Black and Latino neighborhoods. And you can already see that that is having electoral impact. In the primary for New York City mayor, Eric Adams effectively carried the Black and Latino vote because they're feeling the violence. The votes that he didn't get were the liberal, wealthy, white votes. And when the violence starts to come home to the liberal, wealthy, white voters, when they understand that even they're not going to be safe in their enclaves, then you'll start to see a change in the voting. Um, but all of that being said, I've got to give a grim prediction here, which is violent crime started to go up, not just last year, not just 2020, like everyone thinks. It started creeping up around 2015. All of these policies have slowly been put into place. The incarceration rate, I just saw a Pew study that said the incarceration rate at, for 2019 is now equal to 1995 because we've been letting a lot of people out of jail. Now, we're not putting people in jail. We're letting people out of jail. We're not prosecuting all of these crimes. There are some things like drug users and sex workers who are common victims who are never getting any help anymore because they're never in the criminal justice system because they're not being prosecuted. We're in the first five years of what is likely to be a 15 to 20 year surge in crime. So unless people turn around right now and start fixing things right now, they're going to be looking at this for a good long time. The only good news here is that because we saw in the 1990s and the early 2000s how to fix it, how to fix a huge crime surge, and it's by doing things like paying attention to the concentration of crime, 
we have leaders who have gone through this and know how to fix it. The only question is whether or not there will be a political will that will unify us in protecting our communities. Well, that seems to be a a powerful note to stop on, Tom. I wanted to thank you for that very illuminating discussion. Uh, Don't forget to to check out Tom Hogan's uh, work on the City Journal website. He's he's been writing up a storm for us. I think this uh, most recent piece on Kim Fox was his 10th. We'll link to uh, his author page in the description, and you can see um, this this uh, excellent commentary. You can also find City Journal on Twitter at City Journal and on Instagram at City Journal underscore MI. And as always, if you like what you heard on the podcast, please give us a ratings on iTunes. Tom, thanks again. Thanks, Brian. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.